I thank you for that holy crescendo, Father, amazing grace. Father, you are our creator, our Lord, our redeemer. So today we ask you to open up the eyes of our heart as Jehan opens up the scriptures to us, that we may know that you are holy, abiding among the holy, that there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant, chesed, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Oh Lord, we're going through a severe drought, raging fires, cities like Greenville burned to ashes across our land. We pray that you would have mercy on us. You are the God that rides on the clouds. You are the God that splits the sea. You're the God that answered Elijah when he prayed for rain. So we ask you to forgive our sins for not being good stewards of your creation, which is holy, and to pour out your heavenly rains in abundance to heal and cleanse our land and do it in a way that you were glorified, that the firefighters would give thanks to you and all peoples would gather and share your praise that this is an unnatural miracle of your grace upon us. We ask you in the midst of this pandemic, with this dangerous, deadly Delta virus, be our helper and protector. Let your face shine upon us in peace for our good, so we may be sheltered by your mighty hand. And deliver us from every sin by your uplifted arm. Save those among us who are in distress and anxiety from isolation. Have mercy on the humble. Raise up the fallen. Reveal yourself to those in need. Send angels to attend to those who lay sick in isolation. Turn back those who have wandered from your love. Father, we pray for your grace and continued healing for Luke Deal. We praise you for the outpouring of God's people and the love that they've had. We pray for Kirk and Marilyn Kellogg as they recover from a serious car accident and for their granddaughter who's recovering from COVID. We pray for Joel and Katie and their children as they begin a new adventure to co-pastor a young but thriving church outside of London. Grant them the grace to adapt to a new situation and may their children be embraced with new friends. And may you use them as your heralds of the gospel and the growth of your kingdom along with us until all nations know that you are the only God, that Jesus Christ is your servant and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Amen. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable, verse 11. 
And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine across, arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jehan Matthew, and it is a joy for me to be with you this morning. My wife Julie and I, along with our, uh, our four kids, have been a part of PBCC for about three and a half years now, and we have been so thankful for our time here in this community. We've built relationships here that we will truly have for the rest of our lives, and it's, it's an amazing thing to find rich, deep community that will journey with you. You know, for me, that has journeyed with me over these last three and four years as I continue to grow and learn more about who I am and who God is. For me, one of the most significant parts of that journey has been challenging my idea, my, my picture of who God is, and where necessary, allowing that to be replaced by the God that we find in Scripture. 
The last time I was up here, I spoke on Isaiah 6. And if you know Isaiah 6, it's that passage where Isaiah walks into the throne room of God and he sees God on this throne high and exalted, high and lifted up. And he has this terrifying experience of God. But then right there in that moment, he's forgiven and his heart and his view of God are completely transformed. That's one view of God we find in scripture. This morning, we're gonna find another picture of God painted for us, this time in Luke chapter 15, and that is of God as a father. And I don't mean God the Father as in just the title, as in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I mean God the Father as in, as in Daddy, as in Abba, as in Papa. I mean Father as in when my three-year-old Eden wakes up in the middle of the night and she's had a bad dream and I feel her climbing into bed with me and she always comes in on my side of the bed, I love it. And then, and then I wrap my arms around her and then she falls asleep feeling safe and warm and protected, forgetting all about that darkness. And then after she's, she's asleep, I pick her up, I take her over to her bed and I lay her down and I, and I tuck her in and I give her a kiss goodnight. I'm talking about that kind of father. And I know that even as I say that, I know there may be people in this room that go, ah, be careful. Be careful talking about God like that because you're not, being, you're not being respectful enough. You're not being reverent enough. God's holier than that. Somehow when you describe God that way, you're taking away from God. And you know what? Let me just say I get it. I really do get it because this is not the God that I came to know. But I'll tell you it's the God I'm finding now. And friends, it is the God who is. God is both the God of Isaiah 6 and he is the God of Luke 15. But if I'm honest, it is sometimes easier for me to walk into the throne room of Isaiah 6, as crazy as that sounds, than it is for me to fall into the arms of Abba, God. And I think it's because when it comes to God as a father, as a dad, for every single one of us, there exists an earthly counterpart, an earthly example. And for some of us, that example was great. And for some of us, it was not so great, if they were even there at all. But even if you had the best dad in the world, he was still broken and sinful. And so every single one of us comes to this conversation with a certain definition of the word father in place. And it's been shaped by our own experiences or lack of experiences with a father. And so I want to start right there by acknowledging the reality that many of us have a picture of God as father painted in our heads that differs from the God as father that we find in scripture. Because friends, scripture paints a portrait of God. Scripture is a 5,000 year long story about who God is and his relationship with humanity and scripture and scripture alone should paint our picture of God. And friends, if your feelings, if your experiences, or even if society and culture tells you that God is some other way, scripture must win. It must always win. Because the picture of God that we have in our hearts, man, it affects everything. And one of my favorite quotes is one by A.W. Tozer. And he said this, he said, the question before the church is always God himself. And the most crucial fact about any person is not what they may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. 
today's scripture, it changed my life. Because through this text, I met God like I had never known him before. And men like Henry Nouwen, Daryl Johnson, and Kenneth Bailey, their insight added to the profound impact that this scripture has had on my faith and my view of God. And you'll, and you'll hear their voices come through this morning. My prayer is that we will all, every single one of us, meet the Father in a new way this morning. And you know what? That is something only the Spirit can do. So would you pray with me? Abba, we invite you into this sacred place. We come and we lay at your feet every picture we have of you. Every experience that has shaped our thought of you, every relationship that has formed our image of you, God, we lay them down. And we ask for something um, that honestly feels impossible to me so much of the time. But you are the God of miracles and the God of the impossible. And so we ask anyway, God, we ask that you would change us that you would change us from the inside out. God, that you would tear down those pictures we have of you in our hearts that are false and you would replace them with truth, the truth we find in scripture. God, this morning, may we come to know you as Father in the way that you want us to. We invite you here. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you open up with me to the Gospel of Luke? Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and then John, and we will jump in to verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them these parables. Now these opening verses are crucial to understanding the context because we find two key elements here. One, we find Jesus' audience, the primary audience he's speaking to and addressing, and two, we find the core issue at hand. So first, his audience. Who's he speaking to here? Find that the crowds are there, the crowds are present, but the primary audience he's addressing are the scribes and Pharisees. He's responding to something they have said. So who are the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes and Pharisees were essentially the the theologically educated of society. They were like the teachers and, and theologians of Israel, and as such, in that role, they were very concerned with preserving Israel's law and protecting the reputation of Israel's God, and that's a very key point. They were primarily concerned with preserving Israel's law and protecting the reputation of Israel's God. And we read here that they're upset because they say Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. So they have a problem with this. Why is that? This word translated as receives here, it's this Greek word prosdekomai, and it may better be translated as to welcome into fellowship. In some places in the New Testament, the same word is actually translated as looking for. So it's more than just this passive receiving, it's this, it's this proactive seeking out, this open arm welcome to these tax collectors and sinners. And it says not only did he welcome them, he actually ate with them. And the Middle Eastern context, in that context, eating with someone is, and I quote one of the uh, commentators wrote it, that it was an almost sacramental act. It's an incredibly intimate thing for somebody to share a meal with someone else in the Middle Eastern context. And so that is why the scribes and Pharisees are upset. Because remember, they are primarily concerned with the reputation of Israel's God, right? And then here's Jesus, who's hailed as a rabbi, an esteemed teacher, claiming to know the heart of God, and to them, to the scribes and Pharisees, he was shaming that name. He was tarnishing that name by welcoming in and eating with these lowly sinners. 
the rejected of society, the ones who they thought were least worthy of God. See, the scribes and Pharisees, they had in their minds a picture of God, and this was not it. So the core issue at hand in these parables is the character and heart of God. What is God really like? And so Jesus tells them these parables. There are three parables told in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. That's what we've come to call them. But those really aren't good names for those parables because the focus of these parables is not who or what was lost, it's whose was lost. Right, I mean, the parable of the, the lost sheep is not about a sheep, it's about a shepherd. The shepherd that leaves the 99 because he has to find the one. The parable of the lost coin is not about a coin. It's about a woman who turns her house upside down, she lights a lamp because she has to find the one lost coin. And the parable that we often call the prodigal son is not primarily about a son. It's about a father. And this is so important to grasp here. The center of these stories is the character and reputation of God being described to an audience who thinks they understand, but they don't. And so Jesus tells them, these parables. And friends, there are many sitting in church this very morning who think they understand what God is like, but they don't. And I know that's true because that was me. And it still is me in many ways. And so Jesus is telling us, is telling me this parable. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Two sons. So right off the bat, we know if we focus on the younger son, we miss the message of the parable. In fact, if this is being told to scribes and Pharisees, it's actually the older son that's going to take center stage in their minds, and we'll get to him in a few minutes. So we continue. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So this younger son comes to his father and he says, give me my share of my inheritance. Now, I mentioned this man by the name of Ken Bailey, and Ken Bailey was a missionary in the Middle East for the greater part of 40 years, and he's written extensively on, on many parables, but a lot on this one in particular, and he opens up some of the Middle Eastern context, which, which I'll pepper in throughout this message this morning. But he talks specifically about this line, this request of the, younger, of the younger son. And he says it's much more than simply asking for an inheritance. In that culture, it would have been the same as saying that he wants his father to die. So not only an unheard of request, but an unbelievably painful thing for his father to hear. And you know what's interesting here is, you know, remember this is being told for the benefit of scribes and Pharisees, right? And they are primarily concerned with following the law and protecting the reputation of Israel's God. What's interesting here is that the younger son technically has not broken any rules. He technically has not broken the law yet, but in reality, it's much worse than a broken rule. Because what he's done is he's broken his father's heart. And here we learn that at its core, sin is not just about a broken rule, it's about a broken relationship. But that's something that the scribes and Pharisees, they didn't get. They didn't understand that. And so we continue, the father says, the father divides his wealth between them. So traditionally, the older son gets two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son gets one-third. So in all likelihood, this younger son got a third of the father's wealth, and then he lets his son go. 
no caveats, no terms. He doesn't say, okay, go and don't ever come back. He doesn't say, okay, go, but you're not my son anymore. He just lets him go. No excommunication, no ultimatums, no conditions set on this inheritance. And then in verse 14, Jesus continues. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Not many days later. So why the hurry to get out? Why does Jesus say it this way? Well, if he's making a journey, he needs to turn that property into cash. He can't just take a bunch of stuff with him. He needs money with him. And so he has to sell his father's property. But remember, this is a village. This isn't a city. This is a village. It's a small village where everyone knows everyone, and word has traveled quickly. So this younger son has to go door to door to his neighbor's doors, selling his father's possessions. And as he does, the scorn and hatred of the village mounts. And keep that in mind, because that comes into play later in the story. So he has to move quickly, and he does. And then we read that he squanders his inheritance, his entire third of the father's wealth. We continue in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he has no money, he has no friends, and a severe famine strikes, which can be a deadly thing in the Middle East. And it says here he gets a job feeding pigs, and, and pigs are, are an unclean animal in Jewish culture. And so you know that if, he, if he's accepting this job doing this, he's completely at the end of his rope. He's hit rock bottom. And what a journey this younger son has been on, from having it all with his father to now squandering all of that inheritance. And now, in his mind, being reduced to the lowest of the low, serving a Gentile, feeding pigs. But then he remembers his father, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So he comes to his sentences. He decides, okay, I need to go home, but I gotta have something to say. I can't just show up, look at what I've done. So he prepares a speech. And his speech has three parts, like any good speech should have, three parts. Part number one, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Part number one is his admission of guilt. It's his acknowledgement that I've sinned against the God of heaven and I've sinned against you, my father. Part number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Part number two is his acknowledgement of the consequences of that sin, his acknowledgement that he has now broken, he has severed this relationship. And part number three, treat me as one of your hired men. Part number three is his offer to make up what was lost of the father's wealth. It's his offer to pay back his debt. So a three-part speech, carefully planned. And he's making up that speech as he's walking home from the far country. Right, he's, he's thinking this through over and over. I imagine that was probably days of journey, if not weeks. 
And over and over in his head, he's repeating over and over this speech, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired men. Over and over, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired men. Over and over, again and again, his entire way home. And then we come to the climax of the story, of the younger son's story. Because if Jesus is telling this story to reveal the the character and heart of God, it's the father's reaction to his sons that are the center of the story. And so if you're sitting there right now listening to Jesus tell this story, you could hear a pin drop. What will the father do? Verse 20, we find out. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him which came as a surprise. Because everyone in that culture would have expected this father to have made the conscious choice to forget his son. The conscious choice to remove his son from his memory because this son had disgraced him and his family. That's what the father should have done, but that is not the father Jesus knows. The picture we have here is of a father who every day was walking out his front door, straining his eyes long way off into the distance, hoping, watching, waiting, saying to himself, maybe today, maybe today will be the day my son comes home. And that's not all it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him which is another surprise. See, everyone had expected that father to be angry. This son squandered my wealth. Fine, so the father saw him, happened to, okay, that's fine, but now here comes the father's wrath. That's what the father should do. But that is not the father Jesus knows. This father is filled with compassion. And, and this word for compassion here, it's built on the Greek ro- word um, splonknen. And splonknen is literally, it means the guts or bowels of someone. And so when it says he's moved in compassion, it doesn't just mean he felt sorry. It means everything inside of him was twisted in compassion at the sight of his son. It's that like, ah, feeling that this father is having when he sees his son. And Jesus continues, the father saw him, felt compassion, and ran to him. The father ran to his son, which might not seem like a big deal to us, but you have to know that in the Middle Eastern culture, older men did not run. It was actually considered a shameful thing to do. And in fact, even in some modern Middle Eastern and even Asian cultures, older men are not expected to run. They're supposed to walk everywhere slowly and in a dignified manner. See, in that culture, what would have had to have happened is that older, that older father, the father, would have had to lift up the hem of his robe in order to run. And in doing so, he would have exposed his legs and actually exposed his undergarments, which would have been incredibly shameful. One commentator describes this as painfully shameful. So this is a big deal. A father should not run. But that is not the father Jesus knows. The father Jesus knows, he doesn't care. He runs. And I think he runs for two reasons. You know, one, he runs, of course, because he's seen his son. We already know at this point in the story, he's overjoyed to see his son, and so he runs to get to his son. But, but he runs for a second reason as well, and Ken Bailey unveils part of this in the Middle Eastern context. You know, even when you read some stories in the, in the Old Testament, older men, uh, the, the elders of the village, when they were hanging out in the afternoon, they didn't hang out in their living rooms in the recliner. They hung out at the village gate with the other village elders. And we read here that the father sees his son a long way off, so this isn't happening in their living room. This is likely not even happening in their property. Where it's likely happening is outside the village gate, which means that 
If the father has seen the son, who else has seen the son? All the other elders sitting there with him. Other villagers have seen him. And these are the same villagers who watched as this son went door to door selling his father's estate, building that hatred, shame, contempt, and scorn along the way. And here's the thing. See, in the Middle Eastern context, it would not have been unusual for a village to take it upon themselves to exact justice upon a person who had brought shame to the family take it upon themselves to, to pour out that justice, which would have looked like public humiliation, shame, mockery, and sometimes even physical punishment. This is all but guaranteed. And the father, he knows this, and so he runs. He runs to head it off. He runs to his son to protect him. And then he reaches his son. And what does he do when he gets there? Does he remember his pride? Does he stand up straight, remember who's watching, and say, okay, now I'm gonna act like a dignified father? No, and that's not the father Jesus knows. It says, he embraced him and he kissed him. This is, I love the ESV, but really, this, this verse is not done justice, embraced and kissed. Embraced him in Greek is actually four separate words. Literally translated, he fell on his neck. This isn't just a hug. This is a fall on his neck embrace and kissed him. It's not the ceremonial peck on the forehead. It's literally translated as kissed much or kept on kissing. So do you see that the picture that Jesus is painting of the father here, he sees his son, he races to him, he grabs him, he falls on his neck and he starts kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. And who's watching? The villagers. But does his father care? No. Friends, this is the father that Jesus knows. This is the father that Jesus knows. But our friend, the younger son, He's probably surprised, caught off guard, does not know what's going on, but he's got a speech. And he's been practicing this speech this entire way home, and so he's going to tell his speech. So he jumps into it. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And the father lets him say part one, his admission of guilt. Part two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father lets him say part two. It's his acknowledgement of a broken relationship. But remember, there was a third part. There was a third part to his speech. And Daryl Johnson's work on this parable really helped me see the significance of this because what was part three? Part three was the younger son's offer to pay back his debt. It was his attempt to earn his way back into the family, but the father doesn't allow him to even say part three. The father interrupts him. And friends, that interruption is the gospel, because we can't pay it back. We can't make up for it, we can't earn our way back into the family. No matter how much of the Bible you memorize, no matter how many of the rules you follow, no matter how nice of a person you are, you will never earn your way back, you simply cannot. Younger brothers and sisters, you are in the family simply because you are loved. That's it. This is the father Jesus knows. And now the father gets a chance to speak for the first time in the parable, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The best robe, whose robe was the best robe? This is the father's robe. So this son and this younger son is gonna be wearing the father's robe. And he says, put a ring on his hand. In all likelihood, scholars agree that this ring is is likely the, the signet ring. 
It's the ring that the family used to sign and seal official documents. And so what this father is effectively doing is giving his younger son the authority to manage the other two-thirds of the family's wealth. It's incredible. And then he says, put shoes on his feet. Slaves went barefoot, but sons wore shoes. The father continues, verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. A welcome, a forgiveness, a feast for this younger son who deserves none of it. And I want to pause there for a second and just picture this scene. Just picture this scene, visualize it with me, okay? This younger son now has on the father's robe, the father's ring, and new shoes. Friends, who does the younger son look like as he walks into the village? He looks like the father. What a picture. That's what happens if you grow up listening to Brian Morgan preach. But I'm thankful. Here's the thing we can easily miss at this point in the story. It's very easy to miss here, okay? The thing is, right now, no one listening to Jesus is thinking about the younger son anymore. No one. They're not thinking about his punishment. They're not thinking about what he's done. Why? Because now the frustration, the indignation, even the anger that he, that may have been felt toward the younger son has shifted away from the younger son and is now focused on the father, because in running out to his son, in embracing and welcoming into fellowship this younger son, and Ken Bailey puts this well, he says the father thereby takes upon himself the shame and humiliation due to this younger son. So this father now takes on the scorn. This father takes on the hatred. So this son is going to walk into the village covered in the father's robe, looking like the father, and this father is going to walk back into the village bearing the shame and the humiliation of this younger son. Friends, this is the father Jesus knows. The dictionary definition of the word prodigal is is recklessly extravagant. The word prodigal isn't actually in the text. It's just a title we've given to this section, but I would argue this is about a prodigal. But this is not the story of a prodigal son. This is the story of a prodigal father. A father who now wears that title, having taken upon himself the shame, the humiliation, the scorn of the son, and pouring out this recklessly extravagant, scandalous love to the son who deserves none of this. Are you seeing the picture that is being painted right now? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But lest we forget, this is the story about a man with two sons. One a prodigal and the other one was a rule follower. This older son is the character that the scribes and Pharisees can most closely relate to. And to be honest, it's probably the character that most of us in this room can most closely relate to. This is the son who followed all the rules. He does what he's supposed to do. He makes his bed every morning. He puts away the dishes. He says please and thank you. He goes to church every Sunday. He could tell you almost everything there is to know about the Father. Almost everything. We'll continue in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So where has this older son been the whole time? 
He's been serving his father like a good older son. In fact, right when we meet him here in the parable, while all this is happening with the younger son, where's the older son? He's in the field, right where an older son should be, faithfully carrying out his duties. And so he hears that commotion. Verse 26, he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So he hears what should have been good news. His father is overjoyed at the return of his son. Is he overjoyed? No. Verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. Angry, why was he angry? Because this younger son had been welcomed back into the family before measuring up. In fact, he hadn't even promised to measure up. The, youngest, the older son is angry because his father is totally upending his idea of righteousness, upending his idea of what he thinks it means to be a part of the family. And so what does he do? He refuses to go in. And this is a public statement of disagreement against his father, which was an incredibly shameful thing to do in that culture. The irony of this part of the story is that this older son, who is so concerned with the father's reputation, and so concerned with his younger son who is destroying that reputation, does that sound familiar? Scribes and Pharisees primarily concerned with the reputation of God, upset at Jesus for tarnishing the reputation of God. This older son who is so concerned with the father's reputation ends up doing the exact same thing as the younger son. He shames his father, but just like the younger son, he technically hasn't broken any rules. He technically hasn't broken the law, but just like the younger son, he breaks his father's heart. And this time, maybe in an even more significant way, right? Because, because this is the son who is at home. This is the son who should know the father more than anyone else in the world. He has been working with his father side by side, day in and day out. If anybody knows the father, it should be him, just like a scribe or a Pharisee. And friends, just like many of us in this room. But don't we know that even older sons can have a broken picture of the Father. As Gerald Johnson said, here we come to learn that there are two kinds of sinners in this world. There are those who break the rules, and there are those who keep the rules. And we both stand in need of the Father's grace. So what does the Father do? He should have responded in anger, right? He should have responded in anger to this older son that ashamed him, but that is not the Father Jesus knows. It says here that his Father came out and entreated him. I don't know about you, I've never used the word entreated in a sentence, so I have to look it up. I didn't know what it meant. But in Greek, it's really interesting. It's this word parakaleo. And parakaleo, it, it's from the Greek root word kaleo, which means to call. And, and this word, it, you can add a number of, of prefixes to it that changes the nuanced meaning of the words. And Luke actually uses kaleo, or a form of it, more than any other New Testament author. And so he knows what he's doing here. In fact, earlier in the same parable, he uses kaleo with a different prefix. prefix. When, when the uh, older brother, remember he calls the servant to ask him what's going on, he uses the word pros kaleo which means to summon or to call out. It's this idea of facing someone directly face-to-face -face and getting information from them. It's this idea of a, of a superior and a subordinate. Luke could very easily have used the same word here. It's a father and a son. He could have said they proskaleoed, but no, he says parakaleo. And parakaleo means not standing face-to-face, -face. it means coming alongside. It's, it's translated better as to appeal to or try to reconcile with. So what this father is doing is he's softly and lovingly standing alongside his older son as they speak, inviting his son to see the world from his perspective, to see the world from the perspective of the father's 
heart. But the older son, too, has a speech. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. Oh, that must have stung the father. And listen to this first line here. He says, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. These many years I served you and I did everything you told me to do. That's what you wanted, right? That's what it means to be a good son, right? That's what it means to be a good Christian, right? Just follow the rules. Do what I'm told. Go to church. Don't swear. Be nice. That's what you wanted, isn't it? But this sentence is not describing a son. It's describing a slave, This older son thinks his relationship with the father is based on keeping the rules. If I can measure up, I'll be loved. You remember part three of the the younger son's speech? The part he never got to say? It was treat me as one of your hired servants. It was his offer to pay back his debt. It was his offer to earn his way back into the family. And Daryl Johnson brings this out as well. I think one of the most heartbreaking parts of this entire parable is the fact that this older son has been living out part three of the younger son's speech his entire life. He was right next to the father, but he missed it. He missed the point. And so the same words that were said to the younger brother can be said to the older brother as well. And hear me when I say it, older sons and daughters, you are in the family simply because you are loved. That's it, period. And so how does the father respond? He says, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. My son. The word son is used all over this parable in English. And in Greek, it's usually the same word. In fact, it's always the same word. We ask, except for here. It's a different word that's used in Greek. We still translate it as son. But in Greek, it's a different word, technon. It's a much more tender, intimate word. It's better translated as my little child, my dear one, my sweet boy. The father says, my sweet, dear child, everything I have is yours. Look at the world with me. Understand my love as I give it. See the world as I see it. This is who I am. The end. That's it. And that's the interesting thing about this parable. There's no conclusion. Jesus doesn't tell us how it ends. He doesn't tell us what the older son ends up doing. We just leave him out there. He's out in the field. He's full of anger. And his father's arms are around him. So what will the older son do? It's an ending that every older son or daughter needs to write for themselves. Now for Jesus' audience, it's an ending that the scribes and Pharisees needed to write for themselves. They had in their minds a picture of God and it was wrong. So the question is, would they allow their picture of God to be challenged and replaced by the father that Jesus knows? How would they respond? I'll tell you what, the Middle Eastern culture knew what should have happened here. The people listening to the story knew what should have happened. The older brother should respond by taking it upon himself to carry out the responsibility that the father forsook. And that would have meant carrying out the required punishments. And the object of that punishment would likely have been the father. So the older brother would have taken it upon himself to beat the father for the shame he now brought on the family. And isn't that exactly what happened? The scribes and Pharisees and the the greater religious leaders 
they ultimately couldn't reconcile the Father Jesus knew with the God they had in their minds. So what did they do? And they took the incarnation of God and they beat him and they spit on him and they nailed him to a cross. This is Jesus, the one who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he ends up paying the ultimate punishment for lawbreakers and for law keepers. The scribes and Pharisees, they were so concerned with tarnishing God's name. What Jesus was doing, bringing shame to God's name. But I love how Daryl Johnson puts this. He says, for the first time in history, God's name was truly being put on display. Friends, this is the God who welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is the God who lifts up the hem of his robe and runs to sons and daughters. This is the God who embraces rule followers and rule breakers. This is the God who takes on shame, humiliation, and even punishment. This is a God who loves with a scandalous, reckless, prodigal love. Friends, this is the Father. And so now the question that was asked of the scribes and Pharisees is asked of us. What ending will you write? How will you respond? Is this the father you know? Because this is the father who is. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and as they do, I want to ask um, a couple of questions. How many younger siblings are there among us today? How many of you need to know that the father is waiting for you, sitting on that porch, day in, day out, waiting for you to come home? How many of you need to know that the Father sees you right now, that he will run to you, that he will race to you, that he will scoop you up, that he will embrace you? How many of you need to hear that the Father will take on the scorn of the village, the scorn of the older sibling? And how many older siblings are there among us this morning? How many of us have been slaving all the while, trying to earn our way into the Father's heart, never realizing we've had it the whole time? How many older siblings this morning need to hear the father say, I will run to you as well. I will embrace you as well. And I will love you with a scandalous, reckless, prodigal love. Friends, I invite you this morning, meet with the father that Jesus knows. Friends, this morning, may we come to know in the core of our being, know the father that Jesus knows. And whether we are younger siblings or older siblings, may we, each, every one of us, see the Father lift the hem of his robe and run to you, embrace you, and may you feel him put his robe around you. And may we also come to believe and know that our place in his family has nothing to do with our merit and everything to do with the scandalous, reckless, prodigal love of the Father. In Jesus' name.